Okay, today we come to the second of three offices of the person and work of Christ. We've considered uh, Christ as prophet, and now we're turning to Christ as priest. And on page one of your handout, you have a um, copy of the Ligonier Statement on Christology. We've, we've actually recited that. It was on the overhead a few weeks ago. But I wanted to simply remind you that in the second to the last paragraph, it, it addresses the three offices of Christ. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church. And you may remember he's operating both by his word and by his spirit. And so that work continues today in building his church, interceding for us and reigning over all things. So Lord willing, we'll touch on Christ as king, the third of the three offices next week. But this is just the Ligonier Statement on Christology. And you can uh, review that uh, this, this coming week at your, at your convenience. But we've, we've referenced this uh, very helpful uh, document in previous weeks. Page two, uh, I've recited this, or referenced, pardon me, this uh, earlier. But the, um, the doctrine of the three offices of Christ uh, really came to the forefront. It's always been in the scripture, but it came to the forefront of theology with the work of John Calvin and his institutes in the 1500s. But the Westminster Standards, specifically the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says essentially the same thing as our own Christ Fellowship Bible Church Catechism, but it's a little bit more expansive on some of these subjects. But how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest, and this is a key thing, and is once offering up of himself, a sacrifice. Why? To satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And I would simply highlight that little word and, that connective word, because we've spoken in times past about how Christ fulfills his offices, his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, both in what we call his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. His humiliation was when he took on human flesh, suffered at the hands of evil men, was crucified, died, was buried. His exaltation is in his uh, resurrection and his ascension and his present ministry at the right hand of the Father. But he, he continues today to execute the office of prophet, priest, and king. As you might expect in, in the Christ Fellowship Catechism and the, in the Westminster Catechism and in any Reformed Catechism, you're going to find scripture references to substantiate the statements that are made. And I've reproduced for you uh, at, at some length uh, the passages in Hebrews. And you'll notice these are all from the, the epistle to the Hebrews. Because Hebrews is particularly focused on the ministry of Christ as priest. It's really the only book that specifically addresses the priesthood of Christ with any detail. And so I've reproduced a bit of Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but how? Through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So it speaks of the accomplishment of his redemptive work. But it goes on in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, 
Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 28, And so Christ also, having been offered what once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So Hebrews 9 speaks of his once offering himself to accomplish a work of redemption. Hebrews 2 is is very important in that it emphasizes the fact that Christ took on human flesh so that that he might be that mediator between God and man and not only accomplish redemption but continue to intercede for us. And Hebrews tells us, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, this is the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Verse 17 is actually very important in understanding how he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, you may remember, is that work whereby the Son himself took upon himself the wrath of the Father for the sins of those whom he would save, literally satisfying the the, the righteous wrath of a holy God in our place. For since he himself, verse 18, was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's a present ministry and and a past ministry, but he continues to do that. Hebrews 7, I've reproduced this section at length, but I'm I'm just, in the interest of time, just going to go over to the next page, page 3 of your notes. But page 17, it is attested of him, referencing the Lord Jesus as our priest, and citing Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then uh, in a subsequent verse, verse 21 Again, referencing Psalm 110, the Lord has spoke, has sworn, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, speaking of the eternal priesthood of Christ. So Christ has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Then verse 23, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They were prefiguring the work of Christ. In the Old Testament economy, the priesthood was a foreshadowing of the perfect priesthood of Christ, but it was an imperfect foreshadowing because the priests in the Old old Covenant uh, were mortal, and they even had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were sinners. But Christ is immortal, he's eternal, and so his priesthood never ceases. But the the Old Covenant priesthood prefigures this uh, imperfectly, but, but certainly prefigures this. But Jesus, on the other hand, verse 24 by way of contrast, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, always lives to make intercession, a present ministry of Christ as priest. And we'll talk about what it means when he makes intercession for his people. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins 
and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all, and again, notice the the singular fashion of his sacrifice, once for all, not continuing, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So I I cited these passages for you because the catechism, uh, question 25, asking the question, how does Christ execute the office of priest, specifically references these passages in Hebrews. And Hebrews, as I mentioned earlier, is that book in the New Testament that in a particular form addresses the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, by way of review, we've dealt with this in the past, but I think it's always useful to look once again at how the priesthood of Christ, or pardon me, the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, addresses our threefold need uh, as lost sinners deserving the wrath of God. And so I'm just simply by way of review, this article by Kim Riddleberger makes, I think, a very helpful synopsis. And in in a way, I think this is a useful template if you're discussing with someone what it means to be a Christian and the content of the gospel. It's it's helpful to explain to them why it is that they need a Savior. And because without understanding why it is that they need someone to, to substitute himself in their behalf and to die on their behalf and to be raised on their behalf, and to serve as a, a, a sacrifice for them, they have to understand what their need is, and that threefold need is something that is, is addressed here. The diagnosis is not very good. This, this deals with every single human being. Every single one of us falls into this category. We are ignorant. That means we, we simply don't know what we need to know about how to be rightly related to God. We, we simply don't have a knowledge apart from the revelation of Scripture and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as to what what it is that we need to know. And we're guilty and we're corrupt. All of those things are true, and people need to understand that. If you're going to embrace the gospel, you need to understand that that, that all these things are true. A litany of biblical texts reveals we find ourselves as fallen sinners ravaged by this threefold consequence of our sins. So there's our threefold need. I'm going to go over to page four of the notes and just deal with... Uh, the the highlights of this, because this is a review from what we've discussed in previous weeks. Second paragraph, we labor under the tremendous weight of guilt. And this guilt really finds itself in two different areas. First of all, it's it's the guilt because we personally commit innumerable transgressions against the holy law of God the penalty for our many infractions of the law of God. We're guilty because we personally commit sins, just a a multitude of sins. Every day we commit sins in thought, word, and deed. And not only are we guilty because we commit acts of transgression against the holy law of God, but we also are guilty because we are descendants of Adam. And Adam is our head. He plunged all of us into an estate of sin in his transgression in the garden when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's the statement that's made here. Romans 5.12 speaks of that. For by one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so all die because all sin. We sin in Adam. And so the headship of Adam, he is our first head. If we're believers, Christ is our new head, and we find ourselves clothed with his righteousness. But apart from Christ, we all find ourselves as fallen descendants of Adam, both biological descendants and by virtue of his act on our behalf. 
Some people balk at the notion that someone could act on our behalf. Don't balk at that, because if you're a believer, Christ has acted on your behalf, and he is your head by whom you receive his perfect obedience, and and he's suffered on your behalf. So the scripture constantly talks about two heads, two men, Adam, the first head, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of all those for whom he died. So those who are descendants of Adam, which is all of humanity, uh, falls guilty because of individual transgressions and because they participated in Adam in his transgression in the, in the garden and therefore are guilty before a holy God. So because of our guilt, it goes on to say, there is no way we dare stand in the presence of God. Psalm 103 says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the reality is the Lord does mark iniquities. There there is no iniquity that is ever ignored in the economy of God. There is no sin that is ever overlooked by a holy God. All sin is marked by a holy God and must be paid for. We've dealt with this earlier, but how are our sins paid for? There's only two options. Either we will pay for them personally in eternity in eternal conscious torment in hell. And the wrath of God will never be satisfied. That's why hell is is eternal, because the wrath of God is never satisfied. Or the the penalties that that we deserve because of the sins we commit and the guilty status in which we occupy ourselves as descendants of Adam will be paid for by our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's really only two options. Either Christ pays for our transgressions on our behalf when we embrace him as our only hope of salvation and our certain hope of salvation, or... Absent that, that the person who turns from Christ and does not embrace him and him alone as the hope of salvation and the certainty of salvation will personally pay for their sins. Hebrews 9.27 is as appointed to man once to die and after that comes judgment. So God does keep a record and we cannot stand apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bottom of page four, sin leaves us in this threefold need and we need a threefold cure. And the, the, the essence of salvation is there is a threefold cure to our threefold need. Our threefold need is we are ignorant, we are guilty, and we are corrupt. And so sin leaves us in that condition and, and utterly miserable. While the diagnosis is bad, the outlook or the prognosis is even worse because in many cases on earth with, with a, an ailment or some type of disease, someone has concocted a treatment which may be successful in, in providing a remedy, but there is no human remedy for this threefold need. It's fatal, and the earthly doctors have no cure. But there is one, one account of a glorious and miraculous cure, and the good news is that with God all things are possible, and with Christ all of those needs, our ignorance, our guilt, and our corruption, are all addressed in the offices of prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, He reveals to us by his word and by his spirit all that we need to know for our salvation. In his work of of his priestly office, he himself offered himself once as a sacrifice for sin to accomplish redemption and to eternally intercede on our behalf. And as king, he subdues us to himself and he rules and reigns over us and subdues all of his and our enemies. And so each of those offices of Christ specifically address the threefold need. But it was uh, Turretin, Francis Turretin, who was a contemporary with, with Calvin, who described this remedy for human sin as follows at the top of page 5. 
Ignorance is healed by the prophetic. As Christ reveals to us by his word and his spirit all that we need to know, and we would not know it apart from his word, and we would not understand it apart from his spirit. But he addresses our guilt by his priestly ministry. And we'll talk about the office of priest and how that takes place. But secondly, the merit of the priest takes away guilt and procures a reconciliation for us. Thirdly, the priest leads us to God. And fourthly, the priest, by the spirit of consolation, tranquilizes the heart and conscience. Now, when Francis Turton was talking about tranquilizes the heart and conscience, he's not dealing in a pharmaceutical world. He's talking about the fact that we have guilty consciences. How will we stand with a, a, a conscience that, that is clean before a holy God? Remember Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The unsafe person has no peace before God. Romans 5.1 says that having been justified, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that. And Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation. So because of the priestly work of Christ, when Francis Turretin is talking about tranquilizes the heart and conscience, he's not talking about medicinal ways of somehow assuaging our guilty conscience by just sort of numbing ourselves to, to our need. He's talking about really providing true comfort that before God we are forgiven, and we know that we are forgiven, and we know that we have a standing before God as forgiven sinners. Well, turning to Christ as priest specifically, it's, the New Testament speaks often and, and, and deeply about the, the work of the, the priest. And a major passage, one that we didn't look at earlier, but again, in the book of Hebrews, not surprisingly, deals with the characteristics of a priest. What would we look for in a priest? In Hebrews 5, 1 and following tells us a number of things. Number one, and this is the first statement that's made, that this is someone who is appointed on behalf of men in relationship to God. So the, the priest is one who acts as an intermediary between God and man, represents God to man and represents man to God. And so an in-between, a mediator. Secondly, the priest is appointed by God. The word Christ, remember we, we, we talked about this earlier, but Christ literally means an anointed one. And all of these offices, prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament were anointed offices. And Christ is anointed, he's appointed by the Father to fulfill each of these roles, each of these offices. He's specifically given by the Father the prerogative and the privilege of serving as prophet, as priest, and as king. So the Father is appointing him. And thirdly, the priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now there's a remarkable difference between what happened in the Old Covenant. Those priests offered sacrifices and offerings on an ongoing basis. They never really took away guilt. They simply covered it until the final sacrifice by Christ took place. There is no sacrifice of blood of the blood of bulls and goats that takes away sin. But it was an act of obedience. It was an act of, of saying that I realize that I'm guilty before God. I realize that God judges sin. I realize that someone has to die. And those animals had to die as substitutes. But the fact that they were repeated over and over and over, and the fact that the priests offered sacrifices not only for the people, but for themselves, spoke volumes about the fact that these were imperfect sacrifices from the standpoint of really taking away sin. But they looked forward as a shadow, as a, as a picture, so to speak, of what Christ would do. He offered himself once uh, for sin. 
And then fourthly, the priest makes intercession for the people. And that's something that we will talk about, but it's incredibly important for us to understand this is a present ministry of Christ. Sometimes I think we look at the priestly ministry of Christ and we see it as fulfilled in his earthly life, in his incarnation. True, he did, he certainly did at the cross uh, bear the penalty of his people. And when he said uh, to Telestai, paid in full, he literally meant it because what he had accomplished was the Father's wrath had been fully satisfied in his person in our place, if we're trusting in Christ. But his intercession goes on today. It literally is happening right now, and it will continue for all eternity. So it was not completely exhausted in his earthly ministry. The Old Testament looked forward to this, this coming Redeemer, and I'm, I'm just down at the bottom. Remember, we looked earlier at the office of prophet. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses spoke about the fact that God would raise up a prophet. And that, that prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18 is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because Peter, in Acts chapter 3, in the New Testament, specifically references Deuteronomy 18 and says that Moses was speaking about Jesus. So the Old Testament looks forward in specific terms to each of these three offices, prophet, priest, and king, and we find the fulfillment in no other person than in Christ himself. But as Burkhoff, a Reformed theologian, notes, there's no doubt that this Old Testament priesthood and the high priest in particular look forward to a priestly Messiah. If we look at this book of Hebrews, again, hearkening back to this, this one very, very important book in the New Testament, there's all sorts of information that's given to us in that book about the office of Christ as priest. And there are just a number of references. Uh, we, we've got Hebrews 3. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4. Um, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 5, 5, so Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. What does that mean? That means that the Father exalted him. The Father said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. And we could go on. You can look at these passages, but Hebrews is replete with references to the office of Christ as priest. And again, it's very important for us to notice in this middle paragraph, there's two aspects to the offerings of Christ. One of them is he did, in fact, offer an all-sufficient sacrifice. So the sacrifice that he offered really did satisfy once for all the judicial requirements of a holy God. There was nothing else that remaining. But the sacrifice that he offered was himself. And we need, we need to always remember that that was the case. The priest literally offered himself. And this is where these Old Testament prototypes or, or pictures of Christ as priest are imperfect because the, the priest in the Old Covenant would offer the blood of bulls and goats. Number one, it was not all sufficient. It did not satisfy for all eternity the requirements of a holy God. But the Old Covenant priests were offering the blood of someone other than themselves. In the New Testament, of course, we find the fulfillment of Christ who did, in fact, offer a sacrifice that totally eternally satisfied the righteous requirement of God. And that sacrifice was himself. No other priest has ever offered himself as a sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did on our behalf. So you can, you can look uh, again at, at this page. I'm just going to transition uh, to the ongoing ministry of Christ on page 7. So I think we've dealt with the, 
the, the ministry of Christ as priest in his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, culminating, of course, in his cross work. But no, bear in mind that there's two aspects to what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He lived a perfect life that no other person has ever lived. We call that his active obedience. And he suffered in our behalf the wrath of a holy God and paid the penalty that, this, that our sins deserve. We call that his passive obedience. Both of those he accomplished in his earthly ministry, and both of them are essential to our salvation because it's not, sometimes I've said this in my, my care group, we've discussed that what justification means, and I, I remember just as a new believer, someone said, oh, it's easy to remember, justification means just as if you'd never sinned. Maybe you've ever heard that. That's an incomplete, it's, it's true, but it's an incomplete answer because it omits a very important part of what Jesus did. It is just as if we'd never sinned, but that would not purchase a place for us in heaven because it would not render us perfect. It would just render us with our guilt paid for. What is required, of course, to enter heaven is that we be perfect, and to be clothed with the very righteousness of Christ requires that that righteousness of Christ be imputed or credited to us. So justification means both the, the expiation, the satisfaction of, of the penalty that we owe in, in Christ's work on the cross and that we be considered perfectly righteous. And none of us has any resident righteousness in ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our so-called righteous deeds are repugnant. There is filthy rags before a holy God. And that's why self-righteousness is such an ugly thing. It's such a damnable heresy because it, it, uh, self-righteousness would, would someone, and I, I put myself in this category before I was in God's grace turned to acknowledge Christ as my only hope of heaven. I was one of those self-righteous guys. I still wrestle with it. I think we all do from time to time. But self-righteousness, is it, it tramples on the very blood of Christ because it renders the cross work of Christ as unnecessary. If I have any righteousness of my own, then why would my Savior need to die on my behalf? I don't have any righteousness of my own. All I have is guilt. All I have is sin. All I have is, is transgression before God. I don't have any righteousness. So that's why self-righteousness is really the utter, uh, the, the greatest self-contradictory term that one could ever have. Well, what does Christ do for us now? He presently intercedes for us. First John 2 refers to Christ as our advocate. In a courtroom, an advocate is someone who speaks on behalf of someone that they represent, someone who pleads their case, who represents them. And in an earthly court, sometimes the case isn't all that strong. But the advocate does the best that they possibly can with the facts that they've got to deal with and their rendition of whatever the facts are. But Jesus Christ has a perfect case, and Jesus is our advocate. His perfect case is his righteousness and his death on our behalf. That satisfies every claim of a holy God. That's what he pleads on our behalf as our advocate in 1 John 2. But what else does he do? He, in John 17, uh, in this third paragraph on the page, he prays for us, for our sanctification. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus, in praying to the Father, says, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. He's praying literally to the Father that we would be sanctified. And the prayers of the Son are, are always honored by the Father. Jesus is our advocate, is praying that we will be sanctified. He is now our high priest who has gone through the heavens so that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We, we need to remember that. 
and we'll, we'll explore that in, in greater detail, but, but he, he identifies with our infirmities. He identifies with our weakness. He is a compassionate high priest who understands our failures, not because he himself has failed, of course, but he has come right to the edge and been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And he understands the vagaries of life. He understands how difficult it is. He understands what sin looks like, not because he's ever committed it, but because he was surrounded by it during his entire earthly ministry. And he, he was victorious over sin, but he came right up to the edge and encountered innumerable temptations. Matthew 4 talks about the temptation of Jesus by none other than Satan himself. After 40 days fasting in the wilderness, he became hungry and he was personally tempted by the enemy. And in every case, he came out victorious. He knows what temptation looks like in a way that none of us, praise God, will ever personally know. But he's been tempted and he understands infirmities, he understands weaknesses. So what comfort can we have? We, he, we have a, a high priest, the next paragraph, who never sleeps, he never wearies, he, prays, uh, he, he never prays without full effect. He's mindful of our continuing struggles with the world, the flesh, and the devils. Hebrews 2 tells us that. That's why he took on human flesh, among many reasons, but so that he could identify with us on our behalf, so that he would know what it was like to wrestle with the weakness of humanity. He took he fully man, fully God, but he suffered greatly, and so he knows what it means to suffer. And he guards his flock. He is the shepherd in John 10, and he gives himself for the sheep. And he's, he keeps us. John 10, no one will ever take, snatch us out of his hand. John 10 promises that. The Lord Jesus himself says, I personally guarantee that your salvation, if you were in Christ, will never be abrogated. No one can snatch you out of my hand. That is the promise of Christ himself. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. Romans 8. So not only has he done what is necessary in terms of perfect obedience and paying for a debt, but he he stands even now in the, in the second to the last paragraph in pleading our case as our advocate, and he intercedes for us. An intercessor is someone who prays specifically for someone else. And, and so when we talk about prayer, uh, petitions, uh, with, Lord, would you give me grace to uh, go through whatever this personal episode is I'm going through, whatever this trial is, we're praying for ourselves when we're making petitions. When we're praying for someone else, that's intercession. We're literally speaking on behalf of someone else. We're going and we're pleading for someone else's benefit. And Jesus is interceding for each of his people, even now, personally and perfectly on our behalf, pleading our case whenever we sin. And so he's there uh, to minister to us in in all of those ways. Let's go to the next page. I may not be able to get through all of this today, but we'll, we'll see how far we get. Mark Jones is a, a Puritan scholar, uh, along with Joel Beakey and, and the former J.I. Packer. If you were to ask me the three living greatest scholars of, of the Puritans, they would have been J.I. Packer, and in today's world it would be uh, uh, Joel Beakey and, uh, and Mark Jones. Mark Jones wrote uh, an excellent article about, Does Christ Still Sympathize with Sinners?, We need to understand this. We need to understand today what it is that Jesus does for us, how he intercedes for us. Because we need to appreciate what he's doing for us. As we'll see at the end of the notes, Lord willing, 
Paul tells us in Colossians 3, then if you've been raised up with Christ, set your heart or your mind on things above where Christ is. To set your mind means to occupy your thoughts. It means to meditate upon Jesus Christ. It means to really absorb who Jesus is and to be thinking in a deliberate, engaging fashion about that very subject, that very person. So when Paul tells us, if then you've been raised up with Christ, he's speaking to every single believer, right? Because we're we're identified with Christ. So if that's our current condition, Paul tells us we need to occupy our minds with Christ. That means we need to really be thanking him and we need to be meditating on what has he done for us. And that will displace so many of our daily concerns when we begin to occupy our minds with Christ. So many of the things that begin to occupy our hearts and give us cause for concern simply go away. There's even a hymn, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will grow strangely cold in the eye. And you, you know that song. I don't remember all the words. But that's, as we meditate on Christ, the, the things of this earth do grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Therefore, those are the words I was trying to remember. And that's true. As we occupy our minds with Christ, the things of this world do begin to to subside. Well, um, he begins this article talking about the fact that during Christ's life on earth, from womb to the tomb, he lived what theologians call a life of humiliation. Now, in order to understand that, this is his life of, of suffering. He says, keeping in mind, and this is a good reminder for us, we're talking about a person, this is the second paragraph, who is the Lord of glory, the beautiful and glorious one, the radiance of God's glory, full of grace and truth, all of those things. This is the person that we're dealing with. This same person, the scripture tells us, became a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our Savior did that for us. The King of glory became a worm and not a man. The King of glory became despised, rejected, anathematized by men, but but just continually cursed by those whom he came to save. And although those griefs were ordained by the Father for a time to equip him to be a perfect Savior, a faithful high priest. One of the great scholars who wrote a book on the, um, the attributes of God, Stephen Chernock, describes he was a man of sorrows that he might be a man of compassions. How often do we consider that the sufferings of Christ really were ordained by the Father not only to save us from our sins, but also to equip him to be one who understands our need in a very personal, intimate way and to be compassionate on our behalf. And that's, that's exactly what he did. Hebrews 2 tells us he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This next verse, though, look at this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So there's two aspects here to what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He took on humanity 
in perfect obedience to the Father. Remember, in eternity past, there was an undertaking by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to save a number of people, a great number, a vast number, but a definite number. And the Son, in perfect submission to the Father, joyfully, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12 tells us that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He joyfully took on the role of taking on humanity, God himself taking on human flesh, suffering in, a, in, a, in an evil, dark world, exposed to sin on a daily basis, rubbing shoulders with sin every day, not sinning, but, but constantly exposed to, to oppression and darkness and evil, wickedness, rejection, mocking, scorning, humiliation, all undeserved, but so that he might do two things, so that he might fulfill righteousness, and secondly, so that he could identify with his people, so that he could be a compassionate high priest. We have a Savior in heaven now, and we'll, we'll explore this. We'll pick this up next week because I'm going to do this in two parts. But uh, we have a Savior in, in heaven right now who not only understands all of our failings, all, all of our difficulties, all of our trials, all of our temptations, all of the fears that we have, all of the anxieties that we have, not because he's failed, not because he was anxious, but because he knows what it means to go through those difficulties. He knows what it means to be rejected. He knows what it means to, to suffer hardship. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows all of those things. And he was equipped by the Father in his earthly sufferings so that he could fulfill a role not only to satisfy the, the, the wrath of the Father, but that, so he might even now be able to identify with us in our weakness and to intercede for us in our behalf. This last paragraph, Christ's sufferings, temptations, trials, and sorrows during his life of humiliation enabled him now, now, not just in his earthly life, which, but, but even now, to be a merciful and faithful high priest, citing Hebrews 2. And indeed, he is now in heaven what he was on earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but he is now presently in heaven what he was on earth, compassionate, merciful, and sympathetic. One of the Princeton scholars, B.B. Uh, Warfield, wrote a book, The Emer Emotional Life of Our Lord. And... Um, it was an article. It was in The Person and Work of Christ. I think the title of the book was The Person and Work of Christ, but there's a chapter in that book, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And B.B. Warfield, a very, very noted uh, scholar, said if you were to identify one of the aspects of the emotional life of our Lord that stands out in a most singular fashion, most distinctive about Jesus, what would it be? Compassion. That's, that's what he identified as the essence of our Savior. If you were to identify one trait, one emotional aspect of his life that most uh, is often addressed. And think about when he looked at the people, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When he looked upon those who were mocking him, he felt compassion for them. When he looked upon the thief on one side, and when he acknowledged him to be Savior, he, he had compassion on even the thief who was suffering and dying, even at his side. He had compassion for the lost in a perfect way, and he has compassion for us now. And so that, that he was equipped to, to do all of that because of what he suffered on earth, and he presently occupies those, those things. 
I'm going to go ahead and stop here at the top of page 9, and then we'll pick this up uh, next week. But I, So we'll focus in more detail next week on the present ministry of Christ as our high priest. What we've done today is we looked largely at how he has fulfilled the office of priest in his earthly life, in suffering on our behalf and living on our, on our behalf a perfect life, and have touched briefly on... Uh, his present ministry, but it deserves so much more. What I'll be referring to, if you want to read it, read ahead in your notes, we'll address this next week. But in 2010, uh, I went to a conference at Puritan Reform Seminary called "The Beauty and Glory of Christ." It was, a, it, and it was a Joel Beakey, uh, whom I've gotten to know pretty well over the years, gave a message on Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, on the beautiful heart of Christ in heaven. And it, it really touched me 10 years, 12 years ago, even now. I remember that message and how powerful it was. And I'm going to be sharing with you some of the observations that Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, shared on what the heart of Christ in heaven, because we don't think about that nearly enough. And many would recognize this work by, by Thomas Goodwin as one of the most powerful works on Christology or the doctrine of Christ that's ever been written from a pastoral perspective. So we, we need to understand how it is that Jesus is compassionate for us even now and what that should do for us in our lives. It will enable us, I think, as we meditate on these things to do exactly what Paul admonished us, indeed commanded us to do, and that is to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, as we understand what he's doing even now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father.